Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is hidden, is, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his town, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, in ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning on this Christ the King Sunday. As we learned about in, in Sunday school, the last... Sunday of the church calendar before we start our new year next week in Advent. And if this is your first time here at One Ancient Hope, we're, we're so glad, we're so grateful that you're here with us, and we do hope we get a chance to connect with you before you leave today. And, and on that note, we do have uh, coffee and, and donuts downstairs for a time of fellowship afterwards. And today we're, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 13 before we, we transition next week to a, a series in Isaiah for Advent. But before we look to this text, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that it brings us. And we thank you, Lord, that it's the church. It is your word that creates us that crafts us, that collects us, and calls us. And we pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, and that, Lord, you would more deeply work the gospel of Jesus Christ into our heads, into our hands, into our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in his, his excellent book, The Women Are Up to Something, which is a kind of a philosophical biography of, of Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Migley, and, and Iris Murdoch. In this book, the writer and professor Benjamin Lipscomb 
he describes that the basic ethical viewpoint that these philosophers came to fight against. And it's a moral outlook that still very much describes our modern moment. And Lipscomb ties this ethical outlook, outlook to a sharp distinction between fact and value. For instance, he looks to the curriculum of school children. And school lessons often have the very noble goal of, of helping students to think critically and clearly so that they can fight against propaganda and sensationalism. However, Lipscomb worries that in drawing this sharp distinction between fact and value, students are left without a compass to actually navigate the moral world. Lipscomb examines curricula that help students identify clue words. And, and these are words that supposedly are just expressions of opinion. These might be words like beautiful or expensive or yummy or gross. And these, the curriculum say, they are not facts. They only tell us, they only express how we feel about something. But fact words, fact words are words that tell us something about quantity or size or age or shape or color or origin or material. To borrow a classic example of, of C.S. Lewis, who also looks at children's curriculum, if you say that the waterfall is sublime, you're not actually speaking about the waterfall. You're only saying something about yourself, how the waterfall makes you feel. It's no more true than saying that the waterfall is, is pretty, because only facts are true, and, and these are not facts. It's no more true than saying that the waterfall is horrid or disgusting or boring or irrelevant. Again, there is no true or false at all concerning these evaluations. We can't even truly say that the waterfall is good. But as Lipscomb shows, this actually sets us on a dangerous path. Consider other clue words that supposedly only express opinion and not fact. Words like should, think, best, worst, good, bad, wrong, right. Lipscomb offers us the following statements then that would only be mere matters of opinion. The sun is pretty. Friday is the best day of the week. Abraham Lincoln was an eloquent speaker. And then he leaves us with this one. It is wrong to kill the innocent. As Lipscomb writes, on this picture, judgments of good and bad, better or worse, should and shouldn't, right and wrong, are all mere subjective responses like appetite or nausea. On this picture, values can never be facts. And this is especially pertinent for the four philosophers that Lipscomb follows in his book because it was the English cinema reels with footage from Nazi concentration camps just after World War II that helped to show them that there must be a place for these kinds of evaluations. If it's not a true statement to say that the atrocities of these camps were wrong and evil and should not have been done, all of which are supposed opinion words, 
then we have much too small a view of truth. If right and wrong are mere subjective expressions of opinion, then we are in an ethical vertigo with neither up nor down. But as we will see, this picture runs wholly against what Jesus tells us here in today's parables. We find here the parable of the hidden treasure. But certainly treasure is a clue word for a mere opinion. As the saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. To call something a treasure is only to say how you feel about the thing. It's, it's not to say anything about the thing itself. For instance, maybe you would call a, wonderful, uh, a waterfall a treasure, but to a man who has to listen to its incessant roar of water, how could the waterfall be anything other than a deafening annoyance? The man in the, the parable, he, he thinks he's found treasure, but certainly he can't speak for everyone. Perhaps it's a fact that it's made of gold or silver, but it's only a mere opinion that whatever he's found is treasure. And the same goes for the pearl of great value. Again, fact and value, even and especially great value, those have to be strictly separated. There's no truth to the fact that the pearl is of great value. It's only true that there's a pearl with certain physical or observable characteristics. When you say a pearl is of great value, you're not saying something about the pearl, you're only saying something about yourself. And again, the same goes for the parable of the net into which the fish are sorted into categories of good and bad. A fish can't truly be good or bad. Sure, they can be bigger or smaller, and you know, bigger fish offer more food, but it's only opinion to say that anything, fish or otherwise, is good or bad. But Christ, he holds exactly the opposite view. He tells us that there is, objectively speaking, a treasure for us. He tells us that there are such things as great value. He tells us that there are such things as true good and true bad. Christ tells us that these are not opinions, but truths. Even more, Christ will come to speak of treasures new and old, and as we will see, these are the treasures of who Christ himself is. These are the treasures which objectively and factually are of supreme value to each and every one of us. And so, with that in mind, let's look at each of these parables in turn. In the parable of the hidden treasure, again, we are shown that there is actually a true treasure for humanity. Even more, consider the context of the man's finding of the treasure. He's not looking for it. He's in a field, he's walking through the field, and he stumbles upon something truly great, something truly valuable, more valuable than the whole field. He finds treasure. He finds something that he rightly treasures above all else. And so he sells everything, absolutely everything that he has, to get that treasure. And he does so in joy. This, Christ tells us, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
the kingdom of heaven just is that treasure that we should rightly give up everything for. It's that great, it's that valuable, it's that wonderful. And yes, these are all value words, but Christ assures us that these are facts. And we must not let the familiarity with the parable work to dull its effects in our lives. This man gave up everything, absolutely everything, for this treasure. And he does so because this treasure just is so great. But does this really happen in real life? Or is this just in the world of parables? Whatever the kingdom of heaven is like, would it really call us to give up everything? Well, yes, it could. Daniel Nairi's recent and excellent memoir, Everything Sad is, is Untrue, it brings this out well. Nairi, in, in the persona of his childhood self, he tells the story of his childhood experience of having to flee Iran as a refugee because of his mother's conversion to Christianity. Nairi says that when people ask his mother why she converted to Christianity and why she gave up so much, why she gave up wealth and resources, why she gave up a high-status career as a doctor, why she gave up the respect that came with her high family lineage, Nairi says that his mother says the only thing that she can say because it's true. Nairi goes on. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. That or my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake. But she doesn't think so. And she's poor now. People spit on her in buses. She's a refugee in places people hate refugees. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. The man, by selling all that he has, has also made a terrible mistake if what he found was not truly a treasure, if it wasn't truly valuable. Otherwise, he's given up everything for nothing. But can it be true that something is a treasure? Can we say that the man in the field and Nairi's mother made the right choice by giving up absolutely everything? Can we say that they gained something far greater than what they gave up? Can we say that they did what they ought to have done? Can we say anything more than one man's trash is another man's treasure? Can we not only say something about what something is, but also about how we ought to respond to it? This takes us to the heart of the fact-value dichotomy. The notion that we cannot move from an is to an ought. The notion that the way things are, the world that we know, offers us no direction with questions of should or ought or right or wrong. And there are a number of ways to combat this, 
But let's return to Lipscomb's book. He shows us how the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe undoes this dichotomy. Anscombe reminds us that very often we come to, we infer a need from a fact. And Lipscomb, writing about Anscombe, gives us the example of blueberries. If blueberries are not rooted in soil with enough iron, the blueberries will die. And this is a fact. And so it's a fact that blueberries need iron. But then need is doing much of the same work as ought. Blueberries need soil, and so I ought to plant them in soil rich with iron. The fact is blueberries die without iron. The fact is they need iron, and so the conclusion is I ought to give blueberries the iron they need. From the perspective of a blueberry, iron is a treasure, factually and objectively speaking. But we wonder, is there an objective treasure for us? Sure, it would be the right choice for a blueberry to give up acres and acres and acres of land with no iron for one small patch of soil with iron. Otherwise, the blueberry would perish. Otherwise, the blueberry would never grow to its full fruition. Otherwise, it would never flourish. But is there an equivalent for us? Is there something without which we will die? Is there something without which we will perish? Is there something that we absolutely need to flourish? Because if there is something we truly need, then yes, we ought to have it. And if we ought to have it, we ought to give up anything for it. Just like Nairi's mother, just like the man in the field. But how can we know? How can we know that the kingdom of heaven is what we need, what we ought to seek even at the greatest cost? Well, because the kingdom of heaven is not only like a treasure that a man stumbles upon, it's also like a great, a pearl of great value that a pearl merchant recognizes as the greatest pearl of all. This is what he's been seeking and looking for his whole life, and now that he's found it, he will give up everything to have it. We wonder, though, can, can we really judge between pearls? Who, who can say that this is a pearl of great value and, and this is a pearl of little value? Can we ever do more than simply describe the physical characteristics of the pearl, its size, its weight? It's roundness. How can we ever move from physical facts to actual value? Well, another philosopher is, is helpful here, another philosopher who helps to undo the fact-value dichotomy, Alistair McIntyre. In drawing on Aristotle, McIntyre points out that we often operate with what he calls functional concepts, functional concepts. McIntyre explains that we all move directly from the fact that the watch doesn't keep time to saying this is a bad watch. We all move directly from the fact that this farmer gets the best yield to saying this is a good farmer. Good or bad then become evaluations of whether a particular thing is fulfilling its proper function, whether it's fulfilling its purpose. And based on the purposes of the watch or the farmer, we can say this is a good or bad watch. We can say this is a good or bad farmer. Or based on the purposes of the merchant, we can say this is a good or bad 
pearl. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like the greatest watch, the greatest farmer, the greatest pearl. But what purpose is the kingdom of heaven fulfilling? And, and how are we seeking it like the pearl merchant, even if we haven't found it yet? Well, the kingdom of heaven is the reign of God in the human life. It's God's perfect kingship in the proper human life under his good and gracious rule. And so it's the perfect form of human life. The human life lived with perfect love of God and neighbor and perfect communion with God and neighbor. But how is it that we are seeking this, even if we don't know it? Well, consider an illustration from literature professor Alan Noble. He tells us about the phenomenon of, of zoocosis, which is the term for the ways that lions pace back and forth to and fro inside of their cages. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this before at the zoo. And the technical description of this action is, quote, repetitive invariant behavior patterns with no obvious goal or function. The lion finds itself in an environment that it wasn't meant to live in. It cannot roam, it cannot hunt, it cannot do the natural things that lions are meant to do in the wild. It's like a blueberry without iron. And by McIntyre's analysis, this lion can't do the things lions are purposed to do. In fact, this incessant pacing has no purpose. The lion is restless and anxious because at least instinctively it knows that it's not behaving like a lion. But Noble wants us to turn the lens on ourselves. How is it that we are pacing back and forth because we know something's not right even if we're not sure why or what that is? Well, how do we pace? We pace when we buy new, some new thing on Amazon that we know we don't really need. We might get that thrill of excitement when we press the button to complete the purchase or open that box. But deep down, we know whatever it is, whatever we open, isn't really what we're seeking. We're simply pacing. How do we pace? Well, work and vocation is a great and gracious gift from God. But we pace when we regularly stay extra hours to finish up some project that we won't even remember a month from now because we think work is work and we're pretty sure there's no other choice. We know it won't make us happy. We know we'll forget about that project in a month. We know it will hurt our family, but we do it anyway. We're simply pacing. How do we pace? When we pace, we pull out our smartphones and start swiping and swiping and swiping. In fact, swiping might just be the exact human form of zoocosis, pacing back and forth, up and down for no purpose whatsoever. We know that checking out of our surroundings and into our phone, we know that this swiping won't make us happy, in fact, we've all read the data that shows actually it will make us sadder, but we all do it anyway. We're simply pacing. All of this is zoocosis. 
repetitive and variant behavior patterns with no obvious goal or function. We are that pacing lion. Like the man in the field, we don't know what we're looking for, but like the merchant, we know that we're looking for something. Yes, we all have a bad case of zucosis. And as per McIntyre, if we think of lion as a functional concept, this is not a good lion. It's not fulfilling its purpose. It's like a watch that doesn't keep time. And because the lion is not fulfilling its purpose, it's anxious. It knows something's not right. And surely the same is true for us. Human is at least as purposeful a concept as watch, as farmer, as pearl, as lion. And if humans have no purpose, however, then our zucosis is no problem. In fact, if we have no ultimate purpose or telos or end, then there's no problem with repetitive and variant behavior patterns with no obvious goal or function. Because if there's no ultimate purpose, then really pacing is all that we can ever do. But if we are a functional concept, if we do have a purpose, then our zucosis is a very big problem. And as we often talk about at One Ancient Hope, pre-modern ethics and the ethics of the Bible, it's focused upon purpose, upon flourishing, upon the way to live the good life, upon the happy and joyful life of the human. Ethics is simply a way of being properly and joyfully human. Yes, we often think about ethics as a list of do's and don'ts with no relation to our flourishing or happiness. We think whether or not some behavior leads us to flourish is beside the point. We often think morality has nothing to do with happiness. We think duty has no relation to delight. And often we think if you really want to enjoy yourself, well, then you need to throw morality out the window. But that would be a cruel, cruel trick of God. If the human life that he prescribed was either unrelated to, or worse, contradictory of human joy and happiness and delight. If God made us, then he calls us to the life for which we were made, the life that alone brings human flourishing, the life that alone brings our proper human purpose. And certainly, our zucosis is not flourishing. And so, by these standards, it is unethical. It is bad. And our lives do not have the value, objectively speaking, that they should. But when we look into the kingdom of heaven, we see that pearl of great value. We see that human life of great value. We see the life that we've always been seeking, if, even if we don't know it. And so we do need something. We are like blueberries without iron. Again, as per Anscombe, because blueberries need iron, they ought to have iron. But what is it that we ought to have? What is the obje objective treasure that we need? The treasure that we will do anything for, that we will rightly give up everything for and do it rightly. Well, examine your heart. Do you feel restless? Do you feel this incessant pacing? 
Do you feel this zucosis? Does even the suggestion of a full and flourishing and happy life sound merely sentimental and naive? Well, if that's the case, there are only two options, either zucosis or some particular treasure that you have not laid hold of yet. Theologian Charles Matthew, he, he says the following about St. Augustine's diagnosis of the present human condition. He writes, there is something right about the Augustinian defense of the human as free enough to violate its nature and yet natural enough never to escape the consequences of that violation. What Augustine is saying is, yes, we can give ourselves to whatever we want. Again, we can devote our lives to buying things on Amazon, to endless hours at the office, to the virtual world that our phone is constantly beckoning us to. Yes, we are free to do all of that. The human creature is free by nature. However, by nature, we are not free to escape our nature. The blueberry by nature cannot flourish without iron. The lion by nature cannot flourish in a cage. And we by nature cannot flourish without what God made us to need by nature, namely himself. As Augustine famously says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Augustine also tells us that we have only two options, either God or restlessness, either the kingdom of heaven or zucosis. And the zucosis connection is apt because in the very next parable, Christ, while not speaking of good and bad lions, speaks of good and bad fish. The bad fish are the fish that are not fulfilling their purpose, and so they are thrown away. They have not become what a fish is supposed to become. They're not flourishing in the one and only way that a fish can and were meant to flourish. Imagine a fish that could make a conscious choice of, of leaving the water, of breathing the air, and deciding to brave the desert. Well, as per Augustine, we might say the fish, the fish is free to do that. But the fish is not so free as to escape the deadly consequences of that decision. And the same is true for us. We are called and commanded to flourish in the one and only way that humans can and were meant to flourish. Again, failure to flourish is an ethical infraction. And deep down, we know that we are not flourishing. Again, the kingdom of heaven calls us to a perfect love of God and neighbor, full and complete and perfect love. And you might call that naive, but you cannot call it a low view of the human purpose. In fact, I would argue it is the very highest view of human flourishing. And so, fair enough, you might say, but if that's what we're called to, then we are all bad fish. We are all bad pearls, bad blueberries, bad watches, bad farmers, bad lions. None of us make the cut. And if you said that, you would be exactly right. But remember, if something is objectively good and valuable, it's not only a matter of our flourishing, as per McIntyre, but it's also a matter of our need, as per Anscombe. 
And this treasure that we find, it meets us in our deepest need as bad and unflourishing fish. Christ tells us in this passage, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And we've looked at this verse many times in our series on Matthew. We've seen it as a kind of interpretive key. Matthew is that trained scribe who brings out treasures old and new. He presents the newness of Christ in light of the treasures of the Old Testament, and he presents the treasures of Christ in light of the Old Testament. And in fact, both of these treasures just are Christ. The Old Testament is Christ promised. The New Testament is that fulfillment in Christ. And when we look at Christ, we see the perfect human life of love for God and neighbor. We see all that we were supposed to be. We see the completion of that functional concept that is human. But if Christ only shows us this perfect life, Christ cannot give us what we need. If Christ only shows us this picture of flourishing, then he is not our treasure. If Christ is only one good fish amidst a sea of bad fish, then the kingdom of heaven is not good news. If Christ can only give us his example, then all that Christ can do is condemn us by his perfect comparison. But no, Christ is our treasure. And that means we need him. And that means, objectively speaking, we ought to have him. Yes, we must flourish, but we cannot flourish without Christ. How is this so? Well, before he became our treasure, we were his treasure. Why did Christ come? Why did God the Son become human in Christ? Well, he did so to bring us back to himself. Just like the man in the field, Christ gave up everything to buy us back. We have turned away from God. We have rejected his life of flourishing. We have rejected the holy and fulfilled promise of flourishing upon Christ's return when Christ will usher in the kingdom in full. And when we think about this kingdom, there cannot be perfect flourishing without perfect justice. Christ will establish the flourishing of perfect justice between God and humanity and creation, but he will also punish injustice. That is, if injustice is simply swept under the rug, then justice has not prevailed. But again, how is this good news? For bad fish like us, perfect justice is a terrifying prospect. But don't forget that we are his treasure, which he bought with everything. And in so doing, Christ gave us what we need. Christ paid the penalty of death that we deserve upon the cross. Christ took the perfect punishment that perfect justice demands. And Christ also lived the perfect life of flourishing and justice. And he gives that status, the status of a perfect human life to us, and so he takes our guilt and gives us his righteousness. Christ bought us with his very life. He gave up everything for us, and like the man in the field, he did this with joy because we truly are his great treasure. And he is the treasure that we need, 
the treasure by which we alone can flourish. And if we receive this treasure by faith, we will be reconciled to God. And we can rest. We can rest in this. And we can have our zucosis healed. But we ask, like the man in the field, doesn't this cost us everything? Yes, it does. It does cost us everything. To receive the treasure of Christ, you must give yourself fully and wholly to him. You must give up whatever you are clinging to for happiness instead of him. You cannot come to Christ with conditions. You cannot come and say, okay, but I'm still going to hold on to my own practices of career or money or sexuality or time or a million other things. Yes, these are all important. They are good gifts from God, but now they will be brought into alignment with Christ's kingdom. And if you are a Christian, ask yourself, what are you still holding on to? What areas of your life are you refusing to offer in return for the treasures of Christ? Are you clinging to your money over Christ? Are you clinging to your schedule over Christ, not consistently making time for church and devotions and prayer? Are you clinging to some romantic relationship over Christ? Are you clinging to professional or academic success over Christ, treating that as your true treasure? Are you clinging to some grudge over Christ? Are you clinging to pornography over Christ? A zucosis that you know makes you miserable and reduces your neighbor to a piece of meat. This is the church. This is the school of bad fish for whom Christ has died. That's the whole point. We should have no illusions about the sins that we battle with. And so please, if you are struggling with any of these things, reach out to me, reach out to someone else in the congregation. I once heard it said that faith in Christ costs you nothing, but most people don't have it. Are you willing to empty your hands and receive Christ wholly and fully? And that's a big deal. He's asking us to give up everything for him. But this is exactly what he did for us. And take note, he really is asking for all of you. Today's passage closes with Jesus being rejected in his hometown. And these are the people that watched him grow up, and the whole thing is just all too mundane for them. They think, shouldn't God meet us in some bigger, better, more explosive, more glorious way? It's all just too regular. But that's life. And it's the regular and mundane routines of life in which God meets us. Again, God came to us in the humble son of a carpenter. And here, God comes to us in this church service. And regular people singing and praying and preaching just like we do every week. And as we've been talking about, you are free to reject Christ just as did the people of Nazareth because it's all too regular and familiar and mundane. But again, as human creatures, we are not free to escape the consequences of this rejection. In the present, that means the continuation of our zucosis, our incessant pacing, our seeking and searching for who knows what. 
But one day, Christ will come again. And on that day, he will fully establish the kingdom of heaven. He will come and he will set the whole world right. And every injustice ever committed will be avenged and punished. On that day, perfect justice and perfect flourishing really will be realized. On that day, Christ will judge each of us for all that we have done. And either you yourself will bear the eternal punishment of that perfect justice, or Christ himself in all of his might will gently stoop down to you as you come before his throne, and he will assure you personally that he himself has already borne it for you on the cross. Remember that you were his treasure that he did everything for. That is how valuable you are to God, objectively and factually speaking. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we are your treasure. We thank you that you have given your son, Jesus Christ, who gave up all that he had so that we might be reconciled to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.